to trust in you. And we ask that even as we have this opportunity to focus our hearts on you, that you would draw us close and let us experience your grace this morning. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Would you guys stand up with us?
your face in every sunrise the colors of the morning are inside your eyes your world awakens in the light of the day i look up to the sky and say you're beautiful Father, we thank you today for the life that we find in you. God, we ask that you would be with us today. We ask that you would teach us and open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word. 
Father, we pray this morning that you would make us like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. If you're one of our kids, K through five, you can be dismissed to Sunshine Kids Club. And if you're one of our guests, um, please feel free to go with your kiddo and get them checked in. And then you can come back and join us. Appropriate footwear can make or break your day. About 10 days ago, Gwen and I, my wife Gwen and I, were um, hiking in the uh, beautiful mountains of Montana. We were on uh, a, a well-known trail in the area, Bear Creek Trail, and we had on our uh, Merrill, uh, I had on my Merrill hiking shoes, she had on our Merrill hiking boots, we were prepared for the trip. And it's about a, uh, well, it's about a 16 mile hike, but we didn't go that far. We, we just did the first mile and a half. Uh, and I'll tell you why. It's, it's an uphill uh, hike uh, through, the, through the forest, through the woods, uh, into the canyon, and uh, you pass two or three talus slopes, and you cross a couple of places where the water trickles across the, the trail, and we saw lots of wild berries, and we saw lots of chipmunks, and, and we just had a beautiful time. It was uh, sunny, uh, but it wasn't terribly hot uh, in, uh, in the mountains of Montana. And... Um, so we took this, and about a mile and a half, the, cro the trail crosses Bear Creek. And that's typically where we stop. Uh, we pack a lunch. We sit on these rock ledges over the creek and dangle our feet into the icy water. And, and so we did that uh, that day. We sat there, and we enjoyed uh, the, the uh, lunch. We enjoyed the water. Uh, Bill and Karis were with us, my daughter and son-in-law, and we just had a great time. And normally, uh, at the end of this uh, hike, after lunch, then we go wading upstream through the creek. Um, and uh, I tried that. Bill and Karis did better than me. Uh, I tried that, but I didn't have water shoes. And so the rocks were somewhat jagged and uneven and uh, just painful, actually, to, to walk on. So I just found a pool uh, deep enough to jump in and plunge and enjoyed the water. Uh, but I didn't have the appropriate uh, footwear to be able to get into the creek and wade uh, up further stream. Uh, so we enjoyed that. Uh, we jumped into the uh, water. Uh, that's a little blurry, but that's me on the right. And uh, the, the old guy. And uh, we had a great time, and then we then we came back down the uh, mile and a half trek and uh, saw a lot of a lot of people on the on the trail. It was a great time. Uh, the appropriate footwear made it would have made it much more enjoyable for me because I love going up that creek and uh, exploring even further up the canyon. Uh, and uh, but I didn't have it that day. Proper footwear uh, is healthy and good whether you're playing sports or you're hiking or you're in warfare. 
And today we continue our sermon series on spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6. And I invite you to turn there if you're not there yet. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, we are looking at the armor of God. We are told to put on the full armor of God. And we're taking a week to look at each piece of the armor. And, and Matt did a great job the last two weeks on the, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. And, and uh, today we're going to look at the footwear. That's what Paul is talking about. And uh, what we're going to see in this uh, passage is that uh, we are to prepare for spiritual warfare with firm grounding in the gospel of peace. We want to be able to stand firm against the schemes of Satan by being grounded in the gospel. We want to be clear on the gospel. We want to have a right understanding of the gospel. That's where we want to be. We want to prepare for spiritual warfare with firm grounding in the gospel of peace. And so our passage today uh, is in chapter 6, verse 15. It draws on that main verb in 14 that applies to all the pieces of armor where he says, stand firm, therefore. And then 15, he says, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I mean, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of, feet, uh, of peace. I, I like the way the uh, ESV uh, translation puts it, uh, making ready or having readiness uh, through the gospel of peace. Paul is going to remind us to stand firm. Again, the context is a defensive posture. This is not an offensive going on the attack against Satan. This is just standing firm in the strength of the Lord as Satan attacks us. And so we want to look at that closely today. There's kind of deliberate irony here as we look at a piece of armor that has to do with peace designed for warfare. But that's what Paul has us uh, looking at, and that's what the Lord wants to insert into our hearts because the gospel of peace is our firm footing in the battle against Satan. So in the first part of 15, I want to look at this idea of standing and, and being ready, being stable because we've got our shoes on, and the uh, principle is that we need to be ready to make a stand versus Satan and his angelic host. We need to be ready. The followers of Jesus are responsible to put on the armor of God. We are responsible to put on the shoes to shod our feet. And that's what Paul is telling us here. We can't stand in our own power, but in the strength of the Lord. You could picture like a, a drill sergeant talking to, a, shouting at a new recruit, put your boots on. That's what Paul is saying here as we engage in spiritual warfare, as the attacks and schemes of Satan come our way. So we're commanded to stand against him. The proper footwear is necessary for the, the battle. And, and there's a picture, I think, of uh, the Roman soldier. This was basically kind of a half boot. Uh, it was a sandal that had extra layers of leather to it. And uh, this one doesn't necessarily show it, but they usually had straps that wrapped up the shin so that in wintertime they could stuff wool down in it to try and keep themselves warm. But you notice the uh, hobnails on the bottom. These are hollow studded nails that that would give them traction. Uh, we think of them as football cleats or soccer cleats. Uh, with those on their sandals, the Roman soldier would be able to dig in, be stable, be able to stand firm. 
So as Paul is in prison there and he glances over at this Roman soldier next to him, he sees the shoes and he says, okay, I'm going to assign that to a piece of the armor. We must be ready at all times for spiritual warfare because we live in a war zone and we know that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion scheming for ways to destroy us, to destroy our testimony, to draw us away from the strength that we find in Jesus Christ. This is how uh, Paul had put it earlier in the passage in verse 11. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We see this word stand a great deal. We saw it four times in the first message, the first verses 10 to 13. But we see it throughout the New Testament. In fact, if you're looking for it, you'll pick up on it today in some of the other passages we look at. And we are going to look at a bunch of passages because I dislike that kind of that wave upon wave of grace hitting us. It'd probably be too much to try and track and write down every verse, but you can always look at the the video that's posted, the live stream afterward and pick up all the passages there if you can't keep up today. But the point is, we've got to be ready because Satan is always on the attack. He is always scheming, and we've got to stand firm in the strength of the Lord. When we consider the overall strategy of Satan in Scripture, I like the way Jesus describes him. He describes Satan as a thief in John 10, verse 10, a very familiar passage. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. If you want to just remember anything about Satan, remember that. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And you can insert whatever you want there. He's come to steal your joy. He's come to destroy your relationships. He's come to kill your circumstances. Whatever you want to put in there, that's what he's about. We're in warfare with the devil himself and his angelic hosts. Jesus finishes that by saying, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. So in Satan, we get one who sucks the life out of us, who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And in Jesus Christ, we get one who is living his life, who has given his eternal life through us by faith. And that's exciting. That's what we want to grasp onto. One of Satan's greatest tactics is to distract, is to distract us. And when I say that, I want you to think about, uh, because that just seems so mild, right? He's just trying to distract us. But I want you to think about some of the, the, the military tactics out there. Uh, sometimes uh, a military group, uh, an army would lead uh, another army into an ambush. They would send out a small group to lead this other, their, their opponents into an ambush where the rest of their army could ambush them and kill them off. Or sometimes you would have where one army would kind of faint toward the front of the other army and then have a big strike from the flank because they were not ready for it. They were distracted, whether they were ambushed or hit from the flank. That's what we talk about with Satan. So we're talking about it in all seriousness that when he distracts, he is drawing us away from our supply lines. He's cutting off our dependence upon Jesus Christ. 
And he can do that a lot of different ways. I want to show you the passage from 2 Corinthians 11:3, where Paul uh, puts this very clearly. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray. You'll be distracted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He takes that seriously, as we must, that we are dealing with something that would distract us from just a simple, pure devotion to Jesus Christ. It's one of Satan's greatest tactics to draw us from the source of our strength. And if he can draw us away, then he can overwhelm us. And it's not necessarily to cause us to create or commit some heinous, horrible sins. It's really just to leave us in confusion and doubt and be overwhelmed and not depending upon Jesus Christ moment by moment. So if he can take your circumstances and overwhelm you, if he can bring fear and confusion and doubt and anxiety into your life, if he can create a life of turmoil for you, then he can distract you from Jesus Christ. And if we're going to stand firm, we can't be distracted. We've got to be ready at all times. We've got to shod our feet to be ready to not be distracted by Satan. The attacks are constant and they are evil. So how do we prepare? Well, the second part of the verse, we see that we are to make our stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make our stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is where his greatest attacks are. This is where Satan wants to hit us hard because this is the heart of what Jesus Christ offers to us, right? Certainly, he, he works to blind unbelievers to the glory of the gospel, to leave them in a state of eternal condemnation. But with us, he still wants to attack. He still wants to engage in warfare. He still wants to distract us away from devotion to Christ. He wants to do anything we can to make our lives miserable and prevent Jesus from being glorified as we walk with him and respond to him with a loving obedience. When Satan can confuse you on the gospel of Jesus Christ, he can cause you to live in fear. What's one of the ways he does that? Well, he makes you fearful about whether or not you ever trusted Jesus Christ. And so you reach these seasons in your life that you're dry spiritually and you think, oh my goodness, you know, it's all because I didn't really trust Jesus Christ. And certainly you want to secure that and be assured of that. That's one of Satan's greatest tactics. He wants to attack us there. Or he wants to attack us and, and have us water down the gospel and, and lead it to kind of a tolerant, all-inclusive universalism that, that everyone is saved, so we don't really have to worry about things. Satan is going to attack our understanding of the gospel. He's trying to confuse people. He wants people to believe what the common man believes that if I work hard enough and I'm good enough, then I can get to heaven. And that's not true. The reason that's so horrible is it leaves a person eternally condemned and it screws up their life because they never know when they're good enough. They never know when they've achieved that status 
And so they search by giving enough money to charity, by being kind to people, by having a membership in the right church, by doing all kinds of things to try and get their goodness to match up to whatever it takes to get into heaven. That is not the gospel. Paul defined the gospel for us clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5. I want to look at verses 1 and 2 carefully first and, and note uh, that this is something that he had taught. And note his emphasis on standing in the gospel. He says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Then he goes on to make God's grace clear through the work of Christ. And he says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's the gospel, simply and purely, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas or Peter and then to the 12. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his offer of salvation is the plain and simple gospel. When the Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? They just said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. What are we believing on when we believe on Jesus Christ? We believe that he is God the Son, that he is who he said he is. And because he's God the Son, he could die as a sinless substitute. And we believe that he did what he said he did, that he died on the cross for our sins, for your sin in your place was buried, and then he rose again from the dead. He was, rose triumphantly over sin and death. That is the gospel. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, and guilt and shame are left behind, dealt with by Jesus Christ at the cross. He has done all the work. We simply receive the free gift of eternal life through trusting in Jesus Christ. And our sins are forgiven. And we receive the free gift of eternal life. Paul constantly warned believers against falling into the trap of believing another message. A right view of the gospel gives us a right understanding of different things about what God wants us to know about the gospel. And so I want you to think about four things with me here. A right understanding of the gospel gives us a right understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. As I just mentioned, we must understand that Jesus defeated sin and Satan and death. Satan is a defeated foe. And, and so you might ask, why is Satan involved in my life? Well, God and the devil are present and involved in the lives of people. Evil is a reality and a threat, but it is no reason for alarm or for anxiety. God's victory is certain. Sin will not win, and sin is not Lord. Jesus Christ is, and the resurrection has already determined the outcome for Satan. He is a defeated foe that God has allowed to rule this world and the world system around us that is opposed to Christ. But even there, all he's permitted to do is allowed by God to continue to show God's glory and for our good. So we can trust God even through the attacks, and when we stand firm, then we face the attacks. The gospel of salvation is so simple. John three sixteen, known and beloved by all of us, 
It says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the simplicity of the gospel. When we have a right understanding of the gospel, we have a right understanding of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Evil is operating in this world. I like what one scholar said about the power of Satan when he was asked. He put it this way. He said, Christ has left the devil only what power unbelief allows him. Christ has left the, the devil only the power that unbelief allows him. In other words, in whatever way that we are not trusting Christ to see us through against this defeated foe, then we are allowing him to exert power in our lives. We are to stand firm. And a right view of the gospel shows Satan defeated. Satan would rather, not, would rather that we not have this view of the gospel. The second right view of the gospel gives us a right understanding of the need of mankind, that we are sinners, that we are born spiritually dead, that we are worthy of the wrath of God. We deserve his eternal condemnation. We could do nothing to save ourselves. We need a savior. But again, Satan would like to confuse us on that. And he would like to get us to think that, say, that Jesus is not necessary. Or there must be Jesus plus some other type of work that we can do. Anything that he can do to confuse people and to take away the power of the gospel. Jesus has done all the work through his sinless sacrifice on the cross. Because we have that need as sinners. And Jesus, Satan would prefer that we don't have that right understanding of the gospel. A third right view of the gospel gives us a right understanding of the power of Christ. Jesus has taken people who are spiritually dead and made us alive in him. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we possess eternal life. Hell is canceled, heaven is guaranteed, and Jesus enters our life to lead us through the Holy Spirit. And that is glorious. He has taken away the penalty of sin through the cross. He has also broken the power of sin in the life of a believer. So whereas we are still tempted by the world and by Satan and by the fleshly nature, we are free to live in obedience to Jesus Christ. Because he has broken the power of sin. We are no longer enslaved to sin. Paul spends a couple of chapters in Romans 6, 5, 6, and 7, and 8, reminding us that the power of sin is broken. And we can live. We can live. This is so exciting. With a daily confidence in the power of Christ. That didn't just end at the cross. And just in end, when you trusted Jesus Christ and received eternal life, that is daily in your lives as you trust him moment by moment, relying on him, depending upon him. One day, Jesus will return and take us away from the presence of sin. We look forward to that day. But in Christ's power, we find confidence for daily transformation. And Satan would prefer that we not have that right view of the gospel. Let me give one more. A fourth right view of the gospel gives us a right understanding which the gospel causes us to live in truth. I think I may have messed that up on the um, screen. But it's the idea that a right understanding of the gospel allows us to live in truth. Paul is always clear on truth because without it, we are in danger of believing anything. 
he had strong words in Ephesians 4, verse 14. I'll read that for you. He says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. We are able to stand firm when we know the truth of the gospel. When we know Jesus Christ, who is the truth, we are able to stand in him. Not knowing the truth of the gospel can lead us to accept the belief system of the world. Satan would rather that we not have this right view of the gospel. A right view of the gospel gives us a right understanding of key elements for our lives because how we think begins to uh, affect how we act. What we believe affects how we behave. And so a right view of the gospel can be very practical in the sense of affecting our daily living. And I'd like to give a couple of examples. If we just think about the gospel, one uh, commentator puts it this way, preaching the gospel to yourself on a daily basis. I want you to think about it this way, because the gospel is, is not just for us to embrace at conversion and be saved, but it is for us to embrace. It is life-giving throughout our walk with Jesus as followers of Jesus Christ. So here's the first thing it does. It increases our love for God. If we were to turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, where we're reminded that we were born in trespasses and sin, that we were spiritually dead, then we see these great verses Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, but God, being rich in mercy with his great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ Jesus. When you remember the gospel each day, you remember that it was the love of God that you've experienced, that it was God who took the initiative to reach out and show the supreme manifestation of his love on the cross through Jesus Christ. And that draws you to love Jesus more. It doesn't keep you distracted. It, it draws you to focus on him more. It increases our love for God when we think about the gospel. It increases our gratitude as we consider what Jesus did for us that we could not do. Spiritually dead people cannot save themselves. And, and so there's a thankfulness that wells up within us. That keeps us focused. That keeps our simple and pure devotion on Jesus Christ. And thankfulness is always a pathway to joy. And so it leads us down a path of experiencing not only his joy, but his peace. A third result of focusing on the gospel each day increases our love for others because it is in the gospel that we have the pattern for loving others. It is in the gospel where Jesus Christ died for sinners. It is in the gospel that we are told in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, that we are to be imitators of God and of Jesus Christ who gave his life at the cross. It increases our love for others when we think of the gospel. When we meditate on the gospel, it also increases our humility. And humility is a good thing because pride is the root of all sin. And without humility, we are likely to go. And, and try to fight through our circumstances or just let our circumstances overwhelm us and create bitterness or anger or frustration or despair, discouragement. But with humility, we remain tied to Jesus Christ. We admit our need of him. Not just as sinners in need of a savior, 
but as followers of Jesus who need his strength, who need his constant power, who need to experience his peace through the gospel on a daily basis. I challenge you to start your day with the gospel this week and see what a difference it makes. You are eternally saved, but remembering the gospel will remind you of all that Jesus has done, is doing, and will continue to do in your life. I think that might be what Paul meant back in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said the gospel in which you stand, the gospel in which you are reminded of the person and work of Jesus Christ and which increases your love for God so that you respond to him in obedience, which gives you greater thankfulness and a love for others and humility. We stand against spiritual attacks by living out our reliance upon the person of Jesus Christ. That happens with a clear view of the gospel. Paul was disturbed any time that he discovered someone had changed the gospel because we are to take our stand in that. In fact, Galatians chapter 1, he's very clear. Every other letter that he wrote, he starts off with his address, and then he starts off with thankfulness for something about them, but not, not the church at Galatia. He starts off with, here's who's writing this, and this is for those who are sanctified in Christ. And why have you changed the gospel? He just lights right into them. Because they were trying to add works. They tried to get the Gentiles who had, had come to Christ through faith and been saved to now be circumcised. They tried to add rules and regulations. And, and Paul gives that warning to believers that when we do that, we wash out the gospel. We don't experience the power of the gospel. We don't have a right understanding. So we are to make our stand in the gospel of peace through a right understanding of the gospel. And the last thing we see in, in verse 15 here is that we are to experience God's peace in the war zone of spiritual warfare. That's to be our daily experience, to experience God's peace in the war zone of spiritual warfare. I was moved uh, last week as I read an article by Dan Wetzel about the youngest participating Olympian this year in the Tokyo Olympics. Uh, it's a 12-year-old girl who plays table tennis. She is from Syria. She's from the city of Hama. Her name is Hend Zaza. City of Hama goes through bombing campaigns. Now, we think we have it bad when there's a protest in our city or when we look around the country and see some of the radical protests that are going on. But she lives in a place where you have to have some form of security if you're going to go out. 12 years old. Table tennis, makes it to the Olympics. And in the interview with her, she said, it's, or the writer, Dan Wetzel, put, this, put it this way. He said, table tennis has kind of become a, a salvation, an obsession, and a relief. She does it. Now, she loves other things. She loves swimming. She loves her friends. She loves to watch TV dramas with her family. She loves her school. But table tennis has just hit it off with her, and she's become an Olympian because of it. She says that it serves as a great distraction because of what's going on in her country. It, it, it takes her to a different place where she completely shuts all of that out. Well, when Paul, and that gives her a sense of peace, when Paul talks about us having peace... By standing firm in Christ, he's not talking about just being a distraction. In other words, he's not saying gain some relief from the devil by thinking about Jesus occasionally. 
Now, he's saying, I want you to experience the life of Jesus Christ. I want you to experience the power of Jesus Christ. I want you to know his peace. So I want us to think about that as we look at four ways that we can experience God's peace. Because when we experience God's peace, then we're free to function the way that God wants us to function every day. And we don't have to become trapped in the circumstances that so often derail us whether it's just an attitude or an action or behavior or words. Here's the first thing that we experience through the gospel of peace, and it's very obvious we experience peace with God, right? We were rebels, we were enemies, we were sinners at odds with God. But Paul puts it clearly that we have been justified by faith, and because of that, we can continue to stand in his grace. He says this in Romans 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in in the hope of the glory of God. We have peace with God. Certainly a conversion, but that continues in the grace in which we stand today. Not only do we have peace with God, but we have peace with others. And here specifically, I believe Paul is talking about the unity among brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. He spent time in Ephesians chapter 2, just a, a few chapters ahead of this. Verses 11 to 22, he, he's talking to the Gentile Christians there, and he says, you know, you guys were without hope in, in this world, without hope in God. You had no relationship. You weren't part of the nation of Israel. You weren't God's chosen people. But Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, he died for you as well. And he offers salvation to you, and he is our peace now. So that there is no barrier between Jew and Gentile. There is no ethnic barrier among Believers in Christ. And we can experience support and encouragement, accountability, admonishment within the body of Christ. Because we have peace with the members of the body of Christ. That is incredible when you think about it. Unity is one of the greatest things that we possess as we stand firm against the devil. Not uniformity, not to all think alike and say the same words and dress alike, but a unity that centers us on Jesus Christ. We've experienced his peace, and all who've experienced his peace now have peace with one another. We get to flesh that out. And when we do, through forgiveness and reconciliation and kindness and being tenderhearted, then we show a unity that stands firm against Satan and his schemes because it is rooted in the gospel of Christ. We experience the peace with God, experience peace with others, and we certainly experience the peace of God. That's the corollary to having peace with God, right? We get to experience the peace of God. Put a very familiar passage up here. I guess I skipped uh, Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. Let's read that real quickly showing the unity we have in Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. We have peace with brothers and sisters in Christ through Jesus Christ. Okay, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. 
very familiar passage to you that reminds us that we experience the peace of God and we experience that peace in a way that surpasses all understanding. We can't figure out how in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our attitude, in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our joys and triumphs, that we can have the peace of God. And Paul makes it clear here, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Jesus Christ himself is going to garrison our hearts and minds. He is going to protect your thoughts and your emotions. When you rely on him, we get to experience the peace of God. The prophet Isaiah gave us a, a beautiful look at that when we started the service with that as we focus our attention and as our minds are stayed on him, as we meditate on the promises of God, as we commune with Jesus in prayer, we are experiencing his peace. It is an incredible opportunity to know his peace and it transcends all understanding. We don't know how it works, but we are thankful. We have peace with God, peace with others, and the peace of God. And, and finally, we proclaim peace with God that others might experience his grace. You might think with shoes that, that, that we talk about going out and, and sharing the gospel. And again, it's not really an offensive posture here in Ephesians 6. It's a defensive posture. But when you live in a war zone, when you live in a world that is opposed to Christ, when you live in a world that is oriented against you because you are a follower and a representative of Jesus Christ, then you face attacks. And when you face those with a peace that surpasses all understanding, it becomes very attractive to those that don't yet know Jesus Christ. It gives us great opportunity to proclaim the gospel of peace, to invite others to place their faith in Jesus Christ, that their sins might be forgiven and that they might receive the free gift of eternal life. Paul put it this way, and again, he quoted Isaiah in Romans 10, 14 and 15, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? He's talking about people who are under eternal condemnation because they have not trusted Jesus Christ. And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? He's just talking about everyone in your sphere of influence. You're the preacher. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Experiencing God's peace frees us up to see those around us who need Jesus. Experiencing God's peace gives us an attractiveness to the world around us so that we can explain the gospel and they have ready ears. It gives us greater compassion and greater boldness to share the good news of the gospel. Paul has told us to put on the full armor and without our hearts tuned to the gospel of grace, we are not prepared for Satan's schemes and attacks. We're reminded here in Ephesians 6.15 that we are to pre prepare for spiritual warfare with a firm grounding in the gospel of grace. We are to stand firm in the strength of our Lord. And we can do that in the gospel by which we come to Christ through faith and receive him as Savior. In the gospel by which we come to Christ every day and receive his transforming power. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the grace that you exude in our lives. And we thank you for the way that you work in, in ways that clearly don't make any sense to us at times, but we need you. 
and we embrace you and we ask for the grace to continue to cling to you regardless of what uh, Satan's attacks are, what the distractions are. We pray that we would get to see your powerful peace at work in our lives. Pray that you give us a fresh look and fresh understanding of the gospel and how powerful your grace is on a daily basis. And we give you thanks for this piece of armor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We'll stand together.
here on this earth and let it glorify all that you are worth for I am nothing I am nothing without you take my time here on this earth Bow down before 
for being with us today. Have a great week.